You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 122. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And codingblocks.net can be typed into your browser where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more uh, on the website that it will take it to. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm tired. You sound, I'm you sound uncertain. Too many video games. <laughs> Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach, Spirit of Christmas. Pew pew. <laughs> I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. And about you, one of the fastest growing e-commerce companies headquartered in Hamburg, Germany, that is growing fast and looking for motivated team members like you. Hey there, today we're talking about data-intensive applications again, uh, based on the book uh, by very similar name, <laughs> Designing Data-Intensive Applications. And today we're talking about uh, the, the third part, of how we're going to be kind of um, qualifying, discussing, kind of scoring uh, applications and methodologies, which is maintainability. The last two episodes were about scalability and reliability, and today is all about maintainability, which is a subject we love very much. Cool. Hey, you did very well with that, seeing as how we had the wrong information in the show notes, so that was that was nicely done. Um, yeah, I, I'm used to uh, getting things wrong and recovering. <laughs> <laughs> nicely done. All right, and so we got some well, Stitcher reviews of, here, like, and I'm getting things right on the fly. Let's see how this goes. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. So let's start with this and Stitcher reviews. Huge thank you. You know we love those reviews. So thank you very much, Program Crag Matter, Patricio Page, the other other Jay Z, which I'm, I'm gonna have to read this review right now. And hey, what's up, Luke Gergen? Hey, wait, that's the programmatical programmer is what yeah, he was trying to say. <laughs> oh, man, that was really good. Programmatical. It's not programmatical. Programmatical. You're right. Programmatical programmer. <laughs> every time I look at it, it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> you notice something new about it every time because I missed the err. Uh, yeah. That's so good. Oh, by the way, did anybody other did anybody else read the other other Jay Z like uh, Fat um, Dude from Austin Powers? The other other Jay Z. Oh no! <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> All right, so I got iTunes here, and mine are not quite so hard. So we have Code Star and Crouching Probe Hidden Cannon. Now we met him at Atlanta Code Camp. I, I don't know if you read the review. I, of I course did. I did. It, it was so cool. And I went back and I couldn't find the image that we posted where he'd won the iPod, the AirPods and all that kind of stuff. Cause I know we had done it somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So at any rate. Wait, super- no, did we post it? No, I thought he took the picture and posted it. Maybe he did. Maybe that's why I couldn't find it. Cause I was looking in our tweet stream, but well, now you're rate, making me think I got to go back and look through my photos to see so, if I have the photo. Yeah. We got to find it. So at any rate, yeah. Huge thanks to everybody who left us reviews. I mean, there were some, some really, really good ones in here and Luke Garrigan, super appreciated the one that you threw up there too. So, uh, yeah, thank you all. And so with that, we have a little bit of news today, and this one is actually near and dear to my heart right now because we've just <laughs> gone through some pains with this. So I know one of you two know the know the episode number of I Still Don't Understand Open Source Licensing. Three. 
Three? Was it really? It couldn't have been that far back. God, I was thinking four, but yeah, it's something like that. Wow. No, actually, it was neither. Okay, or seven. Yeah, three was gift. Uh, get four was a wasp. So it was seven. Seven. All right. So Is episode it? seven. This, I don't know. It's been a few years back. At any rate, so we talked about the fact that you, as a developer, really need to. Be aware of at least the good licenses out there that you can sort of just be like, oh, cool, I can use this. The ones that you probably shouldn't touch at all unless you know what you're getting into. And then there's this one for Stack Overflow that we just found out about recently. And, man, this really stinks because I love Stack Overflow. I I would venture to say you guys – yeah. I mean, is there another site that we visit more than that during our daily programming? Uh, I will never admit to it. (laughs) right so not on the air so here's the thing man this is the part that really bugs me is we were told recently that that you can't just use code from there right and it basically boils down to they use a license and we i'll have three links here for us in the show notes i'll have one directly to their site which talks about their licensing to which there they then link to the creative commons license which is called the create the attribution share alike 4.0 international. So CC BY SA 4.0. Now, here's the thing the reason this matters is because it's one of those licenses that has gray areas. So they have this thing in their, in their license, the share alike portion of it is if you remix, transform, or build upon the material, you must distribute your contributions under the same license as the original. So that means two things. One, if you use it and you build anything using that, maybe this is the great. You have to attribute it. You have to not just attribute. You have to share your code and you have to change your license to the same license. And that is the problem. So unless you're potentially willing, like, here's the thing. This is one of those ones that's not very clear on what um, build upon the material means, right? That can mean, hey, your code is using that code, so you're building upon it, right? If that's the case, you have to open source your entire application. So basically, in other words, be careful about just copying and pasting code from Stack Overflow. So uh, somebody had mentioned that, I guess, like a couple of years ago, Stack Overflow was trying to go through and change everything to MIT. But I guess their community was like, no, I want the attribution and all that kind of stuff. And so it never happened. I wasn't aware of that, but apparently it happened. But one way or the other, we'll have a link to this license. We'll also have a link to the TRD the TLDR legal site that we've brought up in the past as well. And it, it's also not hyper clear on, on some of it. I mean, the point of that site is to be a little bit more brief. So they can well, easier to read, right? Yeah. Like put it in language that we all speak instead of legalese. Yeah. So, I mean, their, their summary of it is that this particular license uh, allows you to do what they want with your work. As long as they, Wait, the, the they's are messing me up. Let me start. Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License in International Version Four that allows you allows to do what they want with your work as long as they share the work under the same license. Which means you'd have to relicense your code as the same share alike thing. So 
Not even the license. It's the sharing part. It's the share. And that's – so again, this – You might not want to share your code. Right. And that's the deal. If you're writing commercial software, chances are you don't want this in there, right? And this is – man, this is where things go crazy and it's frustrating because here's the deal. If it ever went to legal, then there is gray area and they can fight and say, hey, what is part of this? What did you build upon? What didn't you? And it's it's really going to depend on how much time and how much money you spend fighting in the legal system to make this happen. So – this is you, know, where you don't want to argue with your legal department. Like they're, right. that's their job, and they're going to put you down. <laughs> like the, the, it's not often that a lawyer is going to be able to outcoach you, and it's not often you're going to be able to out argue a lawyer. Oh, so I generally a, well, try to try. advise uh, just avoiding that. Yeah. So what I like to say about it when it comes to like the sack cover class, after reading up on it, which is still I still can't I have a hard time believing it, but what I say is. Uh, if you do use the code, you should follow the rules. You should uh, do the attribution, and you should uh, make your <laughs> license match the code that you borrow, uh, or you should just not use it. Wink. Can you, <laughs> well, can you hear that? I'm, okay, I'm wink. Well, here's the problem with the wink thing: is there are tools out there that will scan. It, you could actually take your entire code base and you could submit it to these tools, mm-hmm. and they will scan every single code. Every single line of code that you have and then compare it to not just Stack Overflow, but that's going to be one of their major things, right? But blogs on the internet or other sites on the internet. And so you could actually get a list back of, hey, this code looks like like that code and you're not using the right attribution or this code's using that code and you really shouldn't unless you want to copy left open source your application, right? So it's 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 a dangerous road. And, and again, this pains me because I hate that because I love the spirit of what Stack Overflow is, which is basically developers helping developers. But that license kicker that comes along with it is is rough. So be aware. You know, we used to call those snitches back when I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> Even the um, uh, TLDR, though, for it is still kind of confusing, too, because, you know, that quick summary, it's like, well, you know, you have to share the work under the same license, but then when they give you like what you can and can't do with it and what you must do with it, their must doesn't talk about like you must, you know, share your code. It just says you have to give credit and include the copyright and state changes, Right. you know, but okay. What if you don't make changes to it? Right. Like if you just used it straight up, yeah, that's why I was saying the TLDR on this one isn't really all that helpful because there should be a bullet point here somewhere that says that you have to share and distribute anything that you – actually, they say distribute original or modified derivative works. Derivative works, and that's that's where things get gray, right? Like how much of it was derived versus – what? how do you de- describe derived versus used? And I guarantee you an attorney is going to paint it different depending on which side of the fence they're sitting on, right? So, man, I'll tell you, it, this one – this saddened me quite a bit. So and that's why my 2019 resolution is to not Google for coding problems anymore. <laughs> but I mean, even with like documentation on Microsoft.com came back. Right. As the same problem, which was run through a scanning tool. Right. So again, going back to the whole point of, you know, the wink, wink, whatever the problem is, is there's code that there are tools out there that will scan the code, whether or not you had attribution links or not. And it'll say, Hey, this code looks awfully similar or exact to that code right there, or it's an 80% match to that code right there. 
and it'll find it and it'll be like, hey, this, you know, it looks like you borrowed somebody, borrowed, quote unquote, somebody's work there. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and blog posts, all that stuff, like if it's not explicitly licensed, it defaults to uh, all rights reserved. So you have to be really code with uh, looking. And uh, a lot of times that people can even argue, argue about uh, being influenced by code that you've seen, which is, uh, which is awkward. And uh, I know Elastic's going through a big lawsuit right now with um, like someone who made a security plugin because they said they borrowed some pieces of their code. And uh, it's it's going to get nasty, and you don't want any part of that if you can avoid it. Yeah. Don't don't argue with lawyers. And the the key part here is is what you just said is whether or not somebody wins that lawsuit or not, you're going to spend money fighting it in the court, regardless, right? So it, it it's like a lose lose situation is what it boils down to. And and Mike and myself were talking about this this evening. Is there's some things that there's kind of just one obvious way to do it. And so that's, what's really frustrating is when you see something on stack overflow, that's like, well, yeah, of course that's how you do it. That's like the only way that you really would do it. Um, but you got to be careful about that stuff. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a hairy situation. So, Oh man, have you ever, uh, there's like a website, uh, Oh geez, I forget what it's called. What, um, but it basically contains like all the d- d- various combinations of English sentences and words. And so you can find uh, anything, uh, on this website. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> could you do something like that with code where you just kind of generate all the different possible permutations of code <laughs> and then copyright it? <laughs> so like all rights preserved and you just blast out every possible combination. Like, there you go. So you're like a patent troll at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I claimed it. Dibs, dibs on all the code I generated, man. So yeah, I, that's, that's a little bit longer than we typically do in the news section, but I think that's like a public service announcement for everybody out there. I mean, as developers, we know that we do a lot of searches for problems that we're having. Just be careful and be mindful that copying and pasting code from just about any site may come with some, some major drawbacks. So, you know, be aware of what you're doing. So, uh, by the way, it's uh, library of babble.info, and we'll have a link to it. I just searched for my name, uh, and it's in there several times. So be afraid. <laughs> nice. It just, it just kills me, though, that like Microsoft's own documentation came up, fell, fell under that. That, like, okay, I mean, if they're showing you an example of like, this is how you use our library, and you can't use that. Then it's like, well, all hope is lost. Right. Forget it. We're done. They're the ones who created the language. Why can't we use it? Yeah. It's ridiculous. All right. So I guess moving on then, I've mentioned a couple times I'm going to be speaking in NDC London on January 31st at 12, no, at 11.40 a.m. So if you were there, I'll be talking about streaming, uh, real-time data streaming using Kafka, SQL Server, KSQL, um, all that kind of stuff, and I will be showing demos. So if you're interested and you'll be in the area, please do. And kick him in the shins. Yes. Don't <laughs> kick me in the shins. I'm not Jay. Oh, you kick wait. that dude in the shins. I'll kick back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, there's oh, that. This, this took a dark, dark turn. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta you gotta get to those voices. Like, you kick one of us, uh, you get kicked back. Kick the other one, you get some giggles. <laughs> All right. So also I want to mention we're doing another book giveaway here. So make sure to leave a comment and uh, someone will win. Uh, We had a a bit of a snafu last episode. So if you happen to drop a comment, uh, then uh, you got a book last time. Oh, there was no snafu. Clerical error. No, this Uh, is a Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. This is hey, you guys took the time to go up there and comment on the episode. You all win a book. (laughs) 
Yeah, we went a little crazy there. We got a little drunk on eggnog. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, congratulations and enjoy. And, uh, if you haven't been able to get a hold of you and you'd love to comment before we, uh, went ahead and did that, then you should uh, get a contact uh, with us because we're trying to get in contact with you. Yep. Yeah, we broke the credit card in the process. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, let's do the thing already. Let's do that. All right. So we're talking about maintainability today, which is the, uh, the third tent pole there, uh, in relation or related to scalability and, uh, whatever the other one was. <laughs> reliability. 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 Now we're talking about maintainability, which is something we've done a few episodes on. And so some of this is going to be kind of, uh, a retread, but it's also just kind of, a from uh, coming from a perspective of, uh, specifically towards, uh, data intensive applications. Yeah. One of the things that is really interesting, and we probably all know this, anybody that's been doing software for more than, you know, a couple of years, a majority of the cost in software is maintaining it, not creating it, not designing it. It's keeping it running after it's been built, which <clears throat> totally makes sense, right? Like, nope. if because if you're lucky, you, you build that thing, let's say, you know, it takes you three months to a year, whatever it takes you to build it, the initial version, right? If you're lucky, you're still using that same thing for years, right? So kind of makes sense because, you know, you're going to keep adding features to it, maintaining it. And then the security patch on it. The security patch on the main system is going to get done and it's going to break it. And then you yeah. have to keep maintaining it. Somebody's going to realize you used an example from Microsoft's documentation. You got to rewrite the whole app. <laughs> that's right. There's that. Oh, <laughs> but you're not bitter about it. And that's where that's the flip side to this. Totally. Um, <laughs> But this is funny because they also say, hey, coincidentally, people don't like working on legacy software, as they call it, or maintaining code that other people wrote. I don't know. Do you do you, do you fall in that camp? Hmm. Or do you care? It's either I, I think it's like one of three things. Either you hate working in Brownfield or or no, I guess that'd just be the two things. Or you don't care. Or maybe you, you like it. Yeah, so three. No, there's, you like it, you love it, or you're just me, Joe. You, uh, there's definitely times where I don't like Greenfield, so I would say that I probably prefer some sort of legacy. It's just there's some kind of boilerplatey kind of stuff that you have to do for every new project, like especially on the front end type work that just it gets really tiring to me. So it's like, okay, I'm doing another new grid. I have to go figure out what grid I want to use. I want you know, like kind of figuring out those patterns and establishing them for a new project is just really tiring to me. You've done it a million times, so like for some reason. I always need to do some sort of new kind of work on it because that stuff is always changing every new web project. So I'm just tired. I don't want to make another login page. I don't want to create another grid page. So there's just some patterns that I'm just kind of over. I hear that. Yeah, I think for me, mine really depends on just the state of the code. Like I've worked on some brownfield projects and I'm like, hey, these aren't terrible. Like I don't mind. Like it's easy to reason about and you can you can make modifications. I'm good with that. I've worked on others where it's like – uh I got to do what? <laughs> like, wait a second. How long is this going to take me? So, yeah, I mean, I think it just it depends to me on the state of the code. You? I kind of view it as like it's more of like a what kind of a mental state am I in mm. at the time, right? Because to me, like brownfield application typically is more like situations where you don't have to put – you don't have to think as hard about it because like if it's just a bug or something, for example, like – the boilerplate stuff that Joe was just talking about is already done for you, right? right. You're just like, okay, let me go in. Oh, uh, you know, I, I was supposed to divide, not multiply, right? Yep. You know, whatever it might be. Yep. Uh, yep. But, you know, for the Greenfield, like, 
what, which is kind of where I think Joe is going is like, you got to put more thought to it, you know? And so sometimes you just feel more energized and refreshed. And so you're willing to take on that challenge. And then there's other times where you're just like, I just don't feel like putting up with that kind of crap today. Right. Just let me bang out some bug tickets and be done. Somebody give me a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah frameworks have gotten a lot better. So it's, it's not so bad, but uh, there's definitely been times I go to start a new project and I know I'm going to have web services. I was like, okay, well now I have to think about security. Let me go figure out how to hook up logging and it, this stuff that takes some time, especially when you're not Googling to, to kind of figure out and work through. But you know what? I think part of what you're describing is part of what happens when you become a more experienced programmer is that you now know about all the stuff you have to worry about. And so you get bogged down with it, right? Like when we were in our younger years, it was like, what, you know, file new project, boom, we're good. Nowadays, you're like, wait, no, we got to get security in there. We got to do this. We got to do that. And so you're thinking about all that other stuff that you didn't care about. Oh, you need, you need a web call that can allow you to do this. Hold on. Wait a minute. I'm going to set up a shell script. So if you go to this uh, special URL, it'll just execute that shell script. And then you can like just give it an arbitrary command right. that it could do. That way you could just execute it remotely from, you know, do whatever you got to do. Right. So you have remote admin access to your system. Yeah. Hey, I <laughs> yeah. just wrote a blog post about that. <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I literally did. We should put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, well, have a look at the show notes and don't don't do it. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't do it. Oh man, and because I'm going to sue you if you do, <laughs> all rights deserved. There's no license on this post. So I'm gonna get you. <laughs> we get a copy left. You. Yeah. Um, yeah. So some of the reasons why people dislike working on legacy systems are because you have to deal with bad code sometimes, or it's code that you haven't written. Um, outdated platforms. I know for a lot of people, that's a big one. You don't want to be working in yesterday's technology. And a lot of times those applications were made to do things that they weren't designed to do in the first place. We've talked about people using databases as the hammer and everything's a nail. Mm -hmm. There's situations like that. Or if you're still developing in VB6. Hey, it's apparently one of the most popular programming languages in the world. VB6 or VB.net? VB.net. Uh, you got me. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. Kinda but that's not your either. Pre.net. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about Tyobi. Yeah, I don't think it's right. It's a little fishy. Well, I mean, you know, it sounds legit. It was on the internet. <laughs> right? Uh, so we, we uh, compile sources from all across the internet, like Yahoo News, uh, IRC, <laughs> Bing, well, chat rooms. <laughs> well, Bing just copies Google, so that, oh, that should yeah. be legit. Is that what they do? Yeah. They they. They uh, index they index the indexer. You don't remember that they got caught doing that? No. At some point, yeah, this has been years ago. Like really, yeah, passing if, it on. Yeah, if something got <clears throat> searched for that they didn't have in their index, people were actually proving that they could go to Google and search for that same weird thing. The results would come back, and the same exact stuff would come up in Bing. Yeah. Well, how, wait. How does just getting the same results prove it though? Because you're going to have different indexing um, patterns or, oh, or whatever, fair, right? Fair enough, fair enough. So it was stuff that it was obscure things that they were searching for to find out what was happening. Dude, do you remember what was the name? Oh, we're off track. Do you, <laughs> that didn't take long. <laughs> do you remember that um, there used to be a like a game with Google where you could do a search and if you only got like a single result back, then you won? Do you remember what that was called? Oh, not that you won. I remember it used to take you two a website like you could say i'm feeling lucky or something no 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 no. but yeah. i'm talking about like you would uh, only a single result would come back oh no i didn't know that was ever a thing yeah it was a thing for a while and then like forever and a day like i 
I'd never been able to do it. And then just recently, like last week or something, I was like on a screen share with some, with a coworker and I'm like, yeah, hold on, let's just search for that. And I'm like, oh my, one result just came back. I win the internet. (laughs) You've broken the internet. There was a typo. No, no, you win. You win. You gotta be more optimistic. That's true. All right. So with this whole thing about these um, legacy systems, what they're saying is we should build applications to minimize the pain during the maintenance phase. And this involves using the following three design principles. And we'll mention them here, but we'll go into depth in a second. So you want to take them, Joe? Uh, Yeah. So operability, the idea is to make it so it's easy to keep the system running smoothly. And this is where I'm currently... Uh, taking the most notes, <laughs> time to learn the most about, uh, simplicity, making it easier for developers to pick up and understand what was creative, removing complexity from the system, or, uh, at least writing really long documentation about it in the wiki. <laughs> Just kidding. That's nobody likes that. Nope. Uh, evolvability, making it easy for developers to extend, modify and enhance the system. And that's probably the thing that simplicity and evolvability are kind of the things that we've talked about a lot of times over the years. And I think it's this kind of operability angle. That's kind of, uh, the new perspective I kind of gained from reading the book because it definitely keeping things running is just, uh, it's just critical. If you are dealing with a, a web application or something that needs to be up 24 seven, then, um, that gets to be really important real fast. Yeah, evolvability sounds a lot like the open-close principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yep. for sure. Like how easy it is to make changes. And that's the kind of stuff I struggle with the most. But um, like that's all. That's like the constant struggle, right? It, but, it really uh, is. I, I just uh, – DevOps has kind of changed things a lot, like Kubernetes, Docker, uh, just CI integration. Like every open-source project now has like Travis CI or Circle ZI and tests and automated deployments and, and just everything. And all that stuff is all really good and awesome. We all, you know, we're deploying like 10 hundred times a day, whatever. But that only works when you've got good operability. And that's kind of been the new slant that things have been taking and teams have been accomplishing amazing things specifically because of that one new focus. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I kind of interpret that too as the ability to like, um, like you mentioned Kubernetes. I heard that mentioned, but even like a lot of the cloud type services now where like, if something does crash, it can like automatically respawn or it can automatically scale, right? You know, uh, you know, the elasticity of it can scale as needed. And, you know, that's what I think of when I think of that operability, uh, uh, you know, t- punchline or ticket there, whatever you want to call that bullet point. Um, yeah. The- yeah. I think we're at an inflection point for that because we're at a point now where uh, when something crashes and it comes back up, I'm like, yay, oh, go, oh, thank goodness. That, that was awesome. I'm glad that happened. But if something crashes and it doesn't come up, I'm annoyed, like, that should have come back up. What <laughs> the heck? So we're, we're kind of at this, like, this point of changing where, where kind of our expectations as developers and our, uh, expectations as customers is kind of changing from what is expected. You remember back in the day, like 10 years ago, if a site was down, you go to Reddit or something, it was down, you're like, oh, well, I guess I'll just check back tomorrow. Right. And now it's like, no, <laughs> refresh, 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 refresh. There it is. Well, the tooling's come a long ways, right? And that, that yeah. definitely helps. So do you remember the, uh, uh, the old, that old video, the website is down. Have we talked about this? No, no. You, so. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to put a link to that in. How do you not remember that? Is that when you would call the phone number at the bottom? You'd be like, Hey, um, there's a problem with the website. I can't get it to load. The person would be like, Oh, this darn thing. No, this is like an old video. 
that maybe from like the nineties or something, but you know, the early two thousands and the, the sales guy calls in to, to tech support and the, uh, Oh, the, yeah. the, 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 you know, the admin or the tech support guy, he's like playing Halo. And then yeah. he's like, Oh yeah, hold on. Let me, let me reboot it. You know, I'll rearrange the server. Icons. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll have a link to it, but yeah, it's hilarious. I guess where yeah. we've talked about it before. We might've, we've had a few episodes. Yeah. So one of the good quotes that they had in here that I loved on this operability is good operations can overcome bad software, but great software cannot overcome bad operations. And that is so true. If you don't have people and processes in place to make your software run smoothly, it doesn't matter how good your software is. It's still going to suffer. Um, yeah. If your, your code's slow, well, fine. Here's eight of them. Right. Uh, but if you can't get it deployed, it, you know, it has to be built on a Bertha's laptop or whatever and then, and, and deployed manually or shipped out, whatever, then that's a, a huge problem. And ultimately it's going to drag you down. Absolutely. Well, even like the processes to do that, um, those deployments, right? Like if, you know, if it's, if it's automated, then it's really simple to like get to redo it or to get another one. Right. But if you have to go through a bunch of hoops and it's like, oh, well, it takes like, you know, a month to finish configuring the whole thing. Like, forget it. You're not right. going to, you're not, you're going to, the more difficult something is, the more it's going to be your precious, right? Yeah. You know, like you're, you're going to, you're going to hold that thing dear, the more difficult it was to, to obtain. Yeah, I I wish that that wasn't the case. I wish that more people would treat things like that. Like, uh, hey, man, if I can get that off my plate, then we can do more cool things, right? But a lot of times, I think what you're saying is true. A lot of people hold on to that stuff. Like, I have this special knowledge. Oh, I didn't even mean it that way. No? No. No, I I just meant like, I meant it from the point of view of like, if it took you, you know, a few months to build, to install and configure and build a server and a system, mm-hmm. right? You're going to, you're going to be inclined to like, you know, guard that thing. Right. Versus if you had something scripted out to that, it can just redeploy an environment, then you can be like, Oh, you want to tear it down? Yeah, no worries. Let's just do it. Run it. Right. Yeah. You're not going to, that one that took you two months to build. Oh no, you're not going to want to format that box. You're going to like, every time there's a patch to install, you're going to, you're going to, think twice about installing. Like, yeah, is it, this is it worth it? Is right. that? Yeah. Because you had to go through pain to set that up. Right. That's what I was referring to, but you're referring to like holding on to like tribal knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are people that do that and, and I, I truly don't understand it. Um, Job it's secure. a lot harder to, to set this stuff after the fact too. I have a real bad habit of like kind of being, I call it scrappy or I justify it as being scrappy where I'm like, oh, let me just prototype it. Let me just get it going. Let me make sure this is valuable. I'm just doing MVP and then I'll, I'll, you know, make it official and get it legit and building and deploying later. And it's so much harder to do it later. And every time I do it, I always wish I'd done it sooner. But you know what though? I think that's the right approach. I, I get it because you, you probably took shortcuts to get to the MVP that oh yeah that you wouldn't have. But that, <laughs> he I mean, says it like the Kool Aid Man. Real good ones. <laughs> oh <laughs> some yeah, real, some real good. I know shortcuts. some good shortcuts. But I mean, the problem is though is until you prove some things out, then you know you could be spending time on things that don't mean anything. I mean, dude, you and I both spend a lot of time on certificates and and mapping things up through SAS settings and whatever else, and. 
you would have never spent that time up front if you hadn't thought it was a valuable thing, right? Because well, that's true. You would have given up because it takes so long to get that stuff right that it's like, ah, whatever. And it's just miserable. It is miserable. It's not fun work. It's like the least fun thing uh, I can think about. Yeah. But so like this operability thing, they say operation teams are vital vital for making software run properly, which absolutely is the case, right? And it shouldn't be developers doing it. Um, And the responsibilities include several things here. So monitoring and restoring services if the system goes into a bad state, right? Uh, uh. <laughs> right? That only works if you have things hooked in to be able to monitor that stuff, right? Like, I don't know that we've talked about it on this podcast a lot, but I would say that that's probably one of the things that a lot of developers overlook when they're developing applications is how do I ship information out of this thing so that it can be monitored in its running state? You know what I mean? So you mean like heartbeats or are we talking about logging? Anything, anything like something that can output to something else that can Mm -hmm. monitor it. Right. Um, that's almost always an afterthought. Like when something goes completely sideways on you at, you know, 6 AM one morning and you're like, Oh yeah, I probably need to have something in here to make sure it's still alive. Uh, have I mentioned that I love spring now? <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. I, I know I've, uh, I've crapped on it a bunch of times, but, uh, just thinking about the, just kind of the Java world and some of the things that are kind of standard. Like we were talking about monitoring and restoring, um, you know, maybe when I was doing more .NET or, you know, just like C sharp or Ruby or Colt fusion or other stuff I've worked in. Um, I always kind of did monitoring and restoring just kind of more manually, but with like, Java and Spring has such a rich tradition of doing exactly this with things like um, they've got the like JMX um, kind of protocols and standards for doing just this, and so it's so common for Java applications to just support this stuff. And you know, it's pain in the butt, and you have to. It's got a learning curve. It's so nice to be able to think about this stuff after the fact and be able to pop it in there pretty easily. Right, just turn it on basically because it's yeah. there. It's built into the framework more or less. Yeah, I'm sure that .NET's got some stuff for that. I just, I don't know. Like, I, like if I had a, a C Sharp app and I wanted to easily report um, CPU and just also just custom metrics about it, like, I don't really, I guess I would have to do some Googling. Maybe there's some easy ways to do that. But I, like, I know instantly how to do that in the Java world and, you know, just kind of configure that stuff and set that up. And then on the other side, I know how to hook it into like tools like Grafana or whatever. But when that, that would also depend though on like what your ultimate outcome was. Like if you wanted it, if the destination was CloudWatch, for example, yeah. you know, maybe in the case of Spring, you know, they might already have some kind of integration available to patch into that. I don't know. But, you know, I'm thinking in like a .NET world, you know, you're going to have to like know that that's the de- a destination that you're going to want and either, you know, <clears throat> you know, write some kind of abstraction around it. Hopefully you don't write directly to it, you know, but you know what I'm saying? It's like. So that you could have, okay, this is an event that should be logged every now and then go send this thing to this destination. Yeah. I think to, I think what Joe's saying though is like in the Java world, it's, they have a protocol for it, right? Like, and, and I'm not aware of one in the C sharp world. I'm sure there is something for it, but it's, I mean, it is interesting when you think about some things like that. Um, yeah, it's got, you can kind of configure stuff after the fact. So you can say like, hey, I care about knowing how many of these beans there are, or, you know, like how, like how many of these things. Like you can kind of um, get that logic outside your application. And it's just got really nice hooks for kind of where to plug in and configure that stuff. And it's a pain in the butt. I mean, you're probably going to be writing XML or kind of mm-hmm. annotating stuff or 
it's not fun for sure, but it's just cool that it's got this like 10 years of stuff that you can Google about it. And it's been pretty much the same for all that time, which is pretty nice. It, it is funny because that's sort of the polarizing um, problem for us has always been between Java and .NET is Java. What you're saying is, is the inverse of what we typically complain about in the Java world. Java, there's like 20 different ways to skin a cat, right? And that's always been the frustration is you want to go start a new Java app? Well, what are you going to use? Um, good luck. You're going to spend a week trying to figure out which one you want to settle on. .NET, there's no choice. You just file a new project and, and you're kind of done. You have a few choices along the way, but you're going. But in Java, they do have a lot of well-established things like what you're talking about with the, with the JMX and even things like aspects, right? Like they're sort of first class citizens and things like spring. Whereas in the .NET world, you have to go find something like PostSharp or some other add in that you're going to be paying for to do that. So it's kind of interesting, but um, at least along this line of the monitoring and storing, that is something that you, you really need to think about. Like, what does it mean to monitor your thing? What could go wrong that you need to know and be alerted on if something goes wrong? All right. So the nice thing about hooking into a standard is that other tools understand that standard. And so right. they know how to do things like set up notifications and uh, like monitoring around that without you having to go and custom build that side of things too. Like you can just kind of plug in. Yep. Well, that's why I was imagining that like in that, that CloudWatch example that I gave that I was like, Oh, I can see where, you know, maybe there's already an integration for uh, Java and the CloudWatch API that you don't have to do much of anything on your end. It's weird. The closest thing I can think of in C sharp would be loggers like, uh, and then having different, uh, syncs. I was thinking loggers. of like performance profilers there. Yeah. That's more close to what JMX is. Yeah. So it, it's weird. Yeah. I don't, but, I don't and there know are performance profilers, but you know, you would typically use them like while you're still in the development, right. In debug mode or something, you know, phase of, of it, not after you've, Published. Well, I mean, I once you've deployed it, then Windows has its own profiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we need to research this. I think it's something that we should know about. All right. So yeah, let us know in the comments, and you might win a book. Yeah. So continuing on with the the responsibilities of the oper- operations team, and obviously this is gonna be a limp. We're gonna say every responsibility ever, and and we're not gonna miss anything. But <laughs> uh, tracking down the problems was the next one that they had there. Yeah, that's a skill that that people will have to have. I mean, heck, us as developers have had problems tracking down problems. Yeah, right? I was I was going to say like, isn't this one just pretty much everybody? Yeah, <laughs> like if you have a job <laughs> tracking down <laughs> the problems, <laughs> I dig ditches. So guess what? You have to do. You have to track down the problem. Oh, we hit a pipe. <laughs> There's a rock. Right. Well, I guess we'll dig around it. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm gonna. You gotta get good at estimating that too. Ha ha. Good luck. Yeah, no estimate. Uh, doesn't work. All right. So uh, the next one they have is keeping the system updated and patched, which again goes back to what I what I was describing before. If you know you're gonna you're gonna be reluctant to install updates and patches if if it was a pain to build in the first place, right? Oh yeah. If the if the reproducibility of that system is is difficult, then you're gonna be very hesitant to install something you're like i guess what i'm trying to say is uh you're not gonna be an early adopter of every microsoft patch tuesday right you might wait a patch (laughs) which is bad i mean really about this you're talking about a production system we all three i think all three of us got hit with this i know you and i did there was an update that hit our systems recently that that busted chrome 
Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. That, me too. It, we, it, yeah, it hit all of us. And you spend hours trying to figure out what the issue is and then get it running. And that's on a developer machine, right? Like that's what people that are pretty good at figuring this stuff out. Just imagine you have something like that. Hit I don't your know production if you heard our point before, but we tracked down problems. <laughs> right? Oh no, that's why we had the problem. Cause we're not the ops team. We're the, we're the dev team. But yeah, I mean, imagine that you've got something that is mission critical for your company running out there. And now you have patches coming in, you know, once a month that are, Pretty major patches to your systems. And, and that's why we switched to Internet Explorer. <laughs> For a minute, anyway. IE8 will live on. Oh, man. But just keeping inventory of what you've got like in your organization can, can be really tough, Like just in your application, but also just you know local dev machines and all that stuff when you're talking about vulnerabilities. That's a, a big problem. Yeah, it's not easy. All right, so next is keeping track of how systems impact each other. That one's interesting. Yeah, that's like a whole can of worms. Oh, my God. I mean, you talk about dependencies and code. Just even trying to track that's difficult. But now you start yeah. you start talking about interdependencies between systems. I mean, think about all the stuff that happens between systems. You have networks. You have routes, you know, routers, switches, um, subnets, all kinds of – somebody can flip one number on a subnet and jack up your entire infrastructure, yep. right? So That might have happened no, a time or two. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's dependencies too uh, between them where these two things talk together, but uh, this one doesn't support this type of interface, or uh, it doesn't support TLS three, or it, uh, it doesn't. You have to wait until this one supports the other one. It's just a pain in the butt, especially if you're dealing with a lot of like services, and then like a, another library for interacting with that service. There's gonna be some lag time between that service updating and then that third party. Well, again, keep in mind like this is from the ops team, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be a matter of Hey, we have our, our, we have a, our database system and, you know, we have a primary database and a backup database, but our backup database is, is not the same level of hardware and software as the primary, uh, you know, because it's, we only need it for emergency purposes and we need to, we need to install patches. I don't know if you heard about the keeping updated and patched, but we need to install patches on that primary, which means we need to fail everybody over to the secondary. And now we need to understand the ramifications of that because now everybody's performance is going to be impacted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so, so we're going to have to do this patch during a limited, you know, during a special window of time when we know that, you know, uh, need, or, you know, how many hits it's going to be getting, requests it's going to be taking in will be less, right? Like, I mean, you would hope that you don't live in that kind of world, but I guarantee you there's that kind of oh, world out there. It exists all over the place. There's like, no doubt. I mean, I, that that was the best one I could come up with off the top of my head because, like, really what I was thinking of in my mind were, like, um, SANS, where you might have, like, uh, like some, some set of disks that is for, like, more high-speed reads versus another file system that might be, you Archival. know... Archival. Yeah, it might be more archival type purposes, so it's a little bit slower IOPS or fewer IOPS, slower reads, but yet, you know, everything's there, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, could we take a second to talk about when you run NPM install now and like you start actually kind of scanning through the stuff as it's installing and it's like, hey, I'm looking for a job, contact me at blah, or don't use this package anymore. You see the, like the stuff that people put into like the, the output of the packages you install. I've never noticed that. 
Oh man, uh, do do an npm install and like actually look at some of the crap that comes out. It's it's scary. You're thinking like, oh, that's right. I forgot that there's real people like doing this stuff, and they have all sort of weird things going on. I see packages go by. It's like, hey, I'm looking for a new maintainer because I hate this. And like, oh, okay. I just, <laughs> and it's not one that you're explicitly asking for anyway. It's a package of a package of a package. Right. It's it's a sub dependency of some other sub dependency. Yeah, I just put in like arbitrary code so it can open up a reverse shell, and then that way I can. <laughs> When you npm yeah. install my package, I get access to your system. Uh, and some of the packages, even ones I have, because I've got a ton of just open source stuff. That's you know, it's it's not even I can't even call it open source stuff. It's just projects I've done over the years that are just happen to still be online. And uh, if you try to rebuild them, or GitHub will send me a notification every once. It's like, hey, you know, you have like yeah. seven security vulnerabilities on that, and you're like, oh crap, I don't even remember what that project does anymore. I'm not touching that. <laughs> you you install it, and uh, yeah, at the end it's like, hey, you've got like seven criticals, eight highs, and three mediums. Good luck. Like, oh, man. I'm going to I didn't see that, I guess. Yeah, you're, not, yeah. you're not doing good at your operability pieces there. Yeah, bad yeah. ops team, Joe. Bad. <laughs> you know, they have uh, there's companies out there that will actually scan your repositories and look for problems and mm-hmm. notify you. Someone will actually uh, update the packages for you and create pull requests. Uh, I mean, that's good. All right. It's so, exhausting. so next is anticipating and planning for future problems. So the scale and capacity. That's not a fun job either. <laughs> no, that's really hard. And I know like, you know, it's easy to just say, Oh, just auto scale, but auto scaling is not easy for lots of things. <laughs> There's hey, well, a very few services that do it well. And even as we covered in the last episode, though, right? Like sometimes, you know, you might not start out with auto scaling. You might start out for simplicity purpose, like, you know, get the MVP out there, right? Which might mean you just, you know, have one database or, or one instance of your web app, you know, or whatever that doesn't auto scale initially. Yeah, there was actually somebody I'm looking right now who had written the question. Um, so, I believe it was Nico. He was basically, ah, doggone it, hold on. There was somebody, I, I'll find the name in a minute, but they had asked a question like, hey, we were talking about SLAs and SLOs on the mm-hmm. previous one. Oh, I and, remember that. And they were like, hey, are there any tools out there to help you figure out what they should be? And I'm like, I don't think so, because you don't really know what they are <laughs> until you the best I could come up with, if you're trying to figure out what your uptime and availability and all that kind of stuff would be, is you'd have to take your system, run a bunch of load performance things against it, do something like take the chaos monkey thing from Netflix and try and destroy things and see how well it does, right? Like, and measure that somehow. So, Skywalker is null. Skywalker yep. is null. So, how do you don't set read the, the initial that I left to him? <laughs> how, how do you set the initial SLA SLO was his question. Oh, did yep. you? Oh, you did write back. Okay. Yeah. Don't look. Don't look. That's my tip of the week. Oh, okay. I'm not so going to stick around. I have uh, some, I have an answer for that. Okay, cool. So we won't, we won't go into that any further right now. Cause I ruined something. Well, right. Joe writes in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. I'll just no, 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 so uh, the next one is establish good practices for deployments, configuration management, et cetera. Dude, configuration management, we could do probably a whole series on that. So I do want to bring this up, though, because when you start working in distributed systems, do not underestimate 
how difficult that actually is. Huh. Uh, um, so what you'll you fu- can underestimate how difficult it is. You probably you can't even fathom how difficult it is because when you start thinking about like we've talked about Kubernetes and the fact that you can scale up and do all kinds of stuff, right? Where do you store all that configuration? If you store it in code, then things can respond to it and do your infrastructure. If you're storing it in databases, how do you know when those things change? If you're storing it in config files or in some other system, like the thing is you really kind of have to get a plan together. If you start going into distributed data systems, you really need to think about how you are going to store and manage and update and, and distribute those configurations as they change. And the answer is doing stuff manually. Then it's kind of like we talked about with DevOpsy type stuff. And it's just, uh, it's a world of pain. So all of this stuff, it's all about automating. Yeah. But I feel like, out of your way. I feel like we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't mention names like Chef or Puppet, though, right? Ansible is one yeah, of them. I mean, they have Helm. It doesn't yeah. have to always Terraform. be about Docker or Kubernetes, no. though. Like no. When we yeah. talk about configuration management. So if you're not familiar with those kind of systems, you could like have the configuration of, say, like a Linux environment, you know, all as configuration and then using those tools, it could like spin up a new environment for you and patch it up to whatever levels you have specified in this your configuration file. Yep. And I mean, if we're talking about, so a couple other ones to throw out there, if you're working in AWS, you probably want to look at things like CloudFormation with their templates. If you're working in Azure, I think it's ARM templates. Which one's, ter- isn't there like a Terraform? Terraform is one that goes, it's, they call it cloud agnostic. For, it's for all of them. You write things in Terraform and you can have it deploy things in Azure, AWS, Google Cloud, whatever. So, so be aware that configuration management, if you do start getting into, you know, more distributed, more auto scaling, elastic type setups, you're going to have to put some thought into it. But note now, like we're talking about this from a, from a developer point of view, right? Because this you is mentioned, operations, right? Yeah. This is operations. And in, in like one of the things you mentioned was like committing that to your repo. Right. Right. But if you're the ops team, you might, if it's configuration, depends on how you do it. Right. I don't know. I mean, you know a lot of ops people that use Git. I don't know. No, Joe, I've seen them. Um, sometimes Joe, uh, use Git? <laughs> you'll see people have like multiple profiles, and you can kind of change maybe the profile that you use via one environment variable to swap the whole thing. Hmm. Or are you referring to like a like the twelve factor app type of situation? Is that what you're referring to? When Not you- specifically. Just uh, I've seen it before where um, someone will have like a dev profile and a, a staging profile and a live profile, and then the environment variable will set all you know all three. I mean, that's I don't like that. I think well, I did like that back when the, the DevOps pipeline tools weren't so mature. Well, hmm. I miss. But wait, how how did that go back to Git? Oh, because you would check all all the profiles in. Uh, so, like, you imagine, like, you have a web.config.local, web.config.staging, right. whatever, and then you can oh, transform okay. that uses an environment variable to, to know which one to swap in. Yep, I know. Like, if they were, like, if, for example, if they were, like, a, you know, a, a Linux user profile. Yes. Right? Okay. Or even in And then you could source, net. like, whichever one you wanted, depending on, you know, what environment you wanted to be in. Well, you, an, yeah, or even example. like changing connection strings, yes. or credentials, or whatever. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I was thinking. Gotcha. Like when you'd have a file like connectionstrings.config that would only exist in staging and production or whatever. Okay. Yeah. But of course, now we should mention that you should not be checking credentials into source code. Please do anymore. not. Yeah, ever, ever. Yeah. Because if it because your local Git history could also go up there, right? So even if you didn't think you would put it up remote, 
when you push those changes, if you'd ever committed them, they'll be there. Yeah, now we, we strongly advocate for you write them down on a post-it note and stick it to the bottom of your keyboard. Yes. Because nobody's going to look for it there. Or under your desk, either place. All right. Yeah, and you got to keep that forever because unless you hook up the email server on the tools you're using, <laughs> uh, which, you know, which involves another password that you've forgotten. Yeah. yeah. All right, so here, here's a... Here's one that you hope to never be involved with. Doing complicated maintenance tasks like migrating from one platform to another. Those are rough. The, yeah. I mean, even as developers, we've seen some of that pain. Um, maintaining security is another one. So like the patches and stuff that they were talking about earlier, anything that like that that comes in. It doesn't even necessarily have to be patch related that too like like just to not confuse it with with a bullet point that was already made it could be something that's like uh you know hey we want to use a different um we want to change out the oh, what i'm trying to say so w- like for your tls connections right and you have like here are the different oh, what's the word one dot two for? versions no 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 the 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 handshake agreements like the different protocols that you could use for uh TLS, SSL. I can't even, I can't think now. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Ciphers? No, that's what's going on underneath them. Uh, But yeah, I mean, dude, it could even be something like, hey, we want to lock down some of these Active Directory groups, right? It could be anything. Like, hey, we saw that we had a lot of users on this system that shouldn't have access to the system. We're going to start trimming that down. And if you do that, you could break a bunch of stuff. So. And ideally, well, like all your services should be talking over uh, encryption, uh, over encrypted channels. All your data should be stored and encrypted at rest. And even with the services communicating to each other, you should be rolling those keys and whatnot, uh, as you know, as is appropriate for whatever you're doing. Like if you're not storing customer data, then maybe that's not as important to you. So you need to decide on that level. But if you're if you've got a secure setup, then it's a real beast to maintain. The cipher suites was what I was trying to think. No, of. I did say, uh, yeah, trying to trying to set that the when you're trying to like order the encryption algorithms to what you want to um, use as your as your primaries versus like what order in preferential treatment you, you want, want the to strongest list in that, to weakest, right? right? Yeah, yep. and then you imagine someone like asking Microsoft, attack. like, so um, what uh, encryption encryption algorithms do you use? And they're like, oh, <laughs> well, we've got a hundred thousand servers running. <laughs> Tons of different packages, tons of different services, tons of third-party services. Like, what are they all communicating over? What, like, you know, some someone says, like, uh, hey, Blowfish 3 is out. Don't use it. It's terrible. It's broken. It's like, well, crap. Uh, even figuring out <laughs> which services are using that or have that available is, uh, is a nightmare if you don't keep on top of your inventory. Yep. Yeah, I would just answer the best ones. <laughs> yeah. That's the right answer. So we do the worst ones too, but we also have the best ones. <laughs> well, I mean, we first, we prefer the best ones. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if you need to downgrade it, then fine. So the next thing they had here was uh, making processes and operations predictable for stability. And that's that's a key one, right? Like uh, making sure those things run in a way that you can expect them to run. Um Keeping knowledge of systems in the business, even as people come and go. That one's important. Um, I think they even pointed out how you do that at some point. I don't remember exactly what they said, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think automating is the best because any sort of manual processes or stuff like that, is, they're all just vulnerabilities. They're like holes waiting to happen for somebody to trip in. Yep. 
I mean, they kind of said to that end, it was like, you know, a good ops team, you you make things easy for them. So it goes back to that reproducibility, you know, like anything that you can like automate or script, then, you know, make it easy on everybody. Like don't, don't make people focus on that one little thing that could be easily automated yep. over and over. Right. Like let them focus on the high value activities is what they, uh, what they wrote. Yep. And this is where they say, this is where data systems start coming into play. So all those things that we talked about above, they're basically possible because of data systems. So the data system will give you the visibility into the running systems, right? The monitoring that we talked about. Um, they support automation and integration. You could, this one's key, man. I, I know we've all written software that does bad things here, but avoid dependencies on specific machines. You ever coded something where it was like, oh, it's looking for this host or it's looking for that IP or it's it's looking for this specific drive or something like that. Like when you do that kind of stuff, you make it very hard for an operations team to maintain that stuff. Like you said, if you have to do a patch on something so you need to swap over to another one, that might be way more work than what you ever thought it would be. You know, this is actually an interesting one too because – if we're talking about it strictly from an ops perspective, right? I've actually seen customer environments where, okay, so like your initial reaction might be like, um, one version of this might be like, okay, hey, use the DNS name, not the, you mentioned the IP address. That's why I was going with that. Mm-hmm. So use the DNS name, not the IP address. But I've actually seen customer environments where they're like, no, 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 we don't want to rely on the DNS server. Mm. Because, so you go by IP address, right? Wow. Right. So, I mean, and depending on the need, you're like, okay, I mean. I get it. Maybe in, in, in a particular environment, you could see where that was coming down. Like, you know, if it was like real-time sports, for example, you know, and, and you might not want to rely on DNS just because if you did lose DNS for a moment, you don't want to lose your ability while you're live on air. Right to be able to show what happened, you know, half a second ago. But what if that one machine with that one specific IP address goes down? Right. Yep. Or yeah, you might even you might have a you know something in front of that IP address that's you know masking that there might be five things handling that IP right. address, but then that one thing goes down. Yeah. Yeah. There's no perfect solution, right? There really isn't. It's a case by case. It, it is. really is. And yeah, we might like to fun. fool ourselves and say that, like, no, 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 we could write a book <laughs> called, called, you know, well, I would say clean architecture, but that title's already taken. Um, you know, but whatever, you know, and claim that, like, this is the way you should do everything, but really, it's going to vary. There's always I mean, a week. Yeah, there's week. always going to be extreme environments that are going to be like, well, that's not going to work for us. Yep. Remember in 2015, we were talking about 12 factor after first time. We saw that they were recommending environment variables. <laughs> and we're like, why wouldn't you just use a file? It's so much more easy to keep it checked in. And and now, you know, after uh, some user experience and, of course, going through that section, uh, just realizing how powerful it is to be able to have different settings per environment, which seems like, you know, totally common now. But at the time, I remember just being like, what? Why? The <laughs> <laughs> uh, face he made. Ah. <laughs> uh. So the next thing they have here for data systems is documenting easy to understand operational models. So basically, if you do this, then this will happen, right? Like those, it's almost like stories for the operations teams. 
Um, the next one, giving good default behavior with the ability to override that behavior, which I think is key. That's super important for everybody ever dealing with these types of systems. I like defaulting to local development. So make it easy for the developers to get up with one command and then have any other specific stuff for production or staging of those of environments be that have that configured outside in the, the, the build process or deployment process. It's so hard though. It's so yeah. hard. You you can try your best to make things as easy for like local development and then not realize that you baked in some difficult dependency. Like typically database is the one that comes to mind the most. Databases are a pain. Yeah. They're necessary, but really hard to work around. Uh, the next one that they have here is self-healing when possible, but somebody can actually intervene and manually control it if necessary. And again, they allow you to monitor for predictable behavior, right? So these data systems are super important in the operations. Do you think they were thinking of like the Tesla uh, autopilot when they <laughs> Predictability. When they <laughs> the ability for manual. Don't. None of this half sea stuff. Uh, yeah, the, the ability to like manually take over. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet Educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment, allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book, so there's no need to scrub through hours of video just to get to the parts that you really want to focus in on. Yeah, and just when you thought that it couldn't get any better, they've now introduced subscriptions. So check this out. For a limited time, they're offering 50% off their new subscription price. And with that, once you subscribe at that price, you're locked in to that subscription price for as long as you remain a subscriber. So it's basically like you can head to educative.io slash coding box and get 20% off any single course or you can subscribe and you're essentially getting 50% off of every course. And uh, I want to mention again, uh, we talked about a little bit on the show here, but um, Grokking the System Design Interview has been one of the favorite courses I've ever taken uh, just of all time. It's been really great. And it really goes hand in hand with a lot of things that we're, uh, have been talking about lately with the, the book. So I definitely recommend you check that one out if you're looking for somebody to get started. Yep. So start your learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative.io, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. Hey there, Joe here uh, again, still, still here. Uh, and I'm going to ask you right now to please leave us a review because we love it. We need it. We feed on it. <laughs> We require it for warmth. It keeps us going in the cold heart of winter. And uh, we really appreciate it. And we try to make it easy for you. Because if you go to the website, www.codingblocks.net slash review, we will try and give you a couple links. We know we do. We don't try. We do give you a couple links that make it easy to drop some reviews for us. And, you know, we love those five stars. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a review. We really appreciate it. And uh, the name, names are amazing. So keep it coming, please. All right. So 
With that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Back in episode 119, uh, we asked, how often do you replace your computer? And your choices, your choices were, I forgot how good some of these were. Hold on. Your choices were, every few years, my guild needs me. Or after every Apple announcement. Or I upgrade it until I no longer can and can't stand the wait. Or never. And this 486 is still rocking doom. Or lastly, every time my company gives me a new computer, when I change jobs. All right. So um, I think maybe Joe went first last time, right? Maybe. You always say that. So, okay. Then <laughs> Joe right, goes Joe, first. Joe wants to go first. Oh, I wasn't paying attention. Um, uh, uh, ooh. Um, I think. Uh, this 486 is still rocking doom. And I think it's at 38%. Wow. All right. Big baller. I think I, I think people are going to say every time my company gives me a new computer, when I change jobs, uh, we'll go there and I'm going to stay at a, a nice, safe 30%. All right. So we have Joe saying never at 38%. And Alan saying when his company gives him a new computer at 30%. Yep. 38 and 30%. All right. You both lose. Really? What? Yep. Please tell me it's not after every Apple announcement. I'm going to build news me? No, it's not. No. Okay. No. <laughs> How, do you not know our community? I do. Obviously, their guild needs them. <laughs> really? Have you not seen the gaming channel? Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, what was so, the percentage? So every few years, 40% of the vote. Wow, that's every really good. Years. All right. Yeah. I was actually really surprised about that one. I I didn't anticipate that one. I didn't either. That's it was my was favorite hoping. answer. Yeah, same. From, from the funnies point of view, I thought it was it was my favorite answer. Uh the Apple announcement one was just be like, I was going to be heartbroken, <laughs> you know, because then it'd be like, oh man, there's a lot of people, you know, putting themselves in some unnecessary debt. Then if that's the case. So what was number two and three then? Uh, uh, well, okay. So number two was I upgraded until I no longer can. Okay. And, and can, can't stand the weight. Um, and number three was every time my company gives me a new computer. Wow, so the two top hitters were, were people that are all over it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I'm yeah. still waiting for my guild invite people. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. They've seen us play, so maybe that's why we're not getting it. Uh, <laughs> it's true. All right. Um, so do you want another survey or would you like a joke? A joke, then survey. Survey. No, that was, see, that was a joke. That was so, a joke. Get out of here. What? <laughs> All right. So uh, last time we had a joke from Mike RG, and he supplied me with another one. You ready for this one? We are. And and you guys, especially since you have your uh, London talk coming up, you're going to appreciate this one. Why did the PowerPoint presentation cross the road? 
to get to the other slide. Very good. Wow. All right. Boom. Did you know that one already? No. <laughs> I was just trying to think of what, what's in a slide deck. To, slide. To get to the other slide. There you go. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. I win. I win. <clears throat> all right. Well, in the spirit of uh, the rise of Star Wars, or the rise of Skywalker, sorry, and uh, Baby Yoda. Man. We- I love Whoa. me some Baby Yoda. Do you? <laughs> the Mandalorian. I could watch that little thing. All, I want one. I want a Baby Yoda. Yeah? <laughs> I do. A, a little Baby Yoda? I do. If you haven't seen the Mandalorian. I don't know, I man. Have you seen the way they eat? I don't know that I want to do I ha- that. Dude, I love that little thing. I, he's, he's, he's a cutie. I'll give you that. Uh, I don't know that I want to have to clean up after him. I need him. Uh, Joe, have you not seen this Baby Yoda? No, nah, I'm still watching reruns of the Star Trek cartoon. Dude. Come on. All right. I, I will say this, though. I, I am enjoying The Mandalorian. I am, too. Yeah. I, I like it a lot. I, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't subscribed for Disney+, Plus, like, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Now's a good time to do that seven-day free trial if you haven't and you don't want to because I think most of the episodes are – how many I don't more know. are coming? I don't know how many more are coming, but there's a – There's like six of them out now. Yeah. So. All right. So, yes. so with that in mind – we asked, which sci-fi series is best? And your choices are Star Trek. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a duck. Okay, fine. <laughs> or Star Wars, Han shot first. Or you can uh, just write in Rick and Morty in the comments for a chance to win the book. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody trying to skew the results. Turn off that ah. additional comment field. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, now I'm curious that you got me thinking like, uh, let's see, IMDB, The Mandalorian. Because now I'm curious to see like just how many more are there. Manda. That's a spoiler. <laughs> can, we just, uh, can we just go ahead and say that uh, Yoda is not the name of the race? Wait, I didn't oh. say it was the name of a race. I said it was Baby yeah, Yoda. It was Baby Yoda. I'm not, this I'm is not Yoda Jr., that man. Person. Everybody calls him <laughs> Baby Yoda. Yeah, it looks like there's going to be eight episodes to the first season, and six of them have already aired. Yeah, so Ooh. don't do it this episode. Go get your seven-day free trial on the next episode. <laughs> the, the, uh, no, also, I totally no, no, am no. person. Because when this episode drops, you would be good. Number seven would be out, right? And And – Number eight will come a few days after. Oh, that's right. You'd be able to see it within the same week. Okay, so you're good. You'll get your free seven-day trial. All right. Yeah, but excitingly, it looks like they've already got episode or season two in the works. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by About You. About You is one of the fastest-growing e-commerce companies in Europe, headquartered in Hamburg, Germany. The online fashion store is currently live in 10 European markets with more than 8 million app installs and 15 million active users on its platform, which handles more than 300 million API calls per day. In 2018, About You reached a company valuation of more than $1 billion US, moving up to the exclusive circle of European unicorns. This could only be achieved by the excellent work of About You's tech teams. One third of their employees are developers and come from over 40 different nations, which truly enriches the teamwork of the company. What they all have in common is that they are highly driven by the passion to develop the best product on the market. 
About You also has an award-winning organizational move model that allows developers to switch teams, ensuring constant learning and developer fulfillment. About You has built its software in-house with leading technologies such as Laravel, Node.js, and TypeScript on the server side, Vue.js and React on the client side, and Flutter for mobile applications. Besides a variety of free drinks and fresh fruits, About You offers free language courses and helps new employees in the relocation process if they move from abroad. Moreover, developers get free tickets to About You's own organized conference, Code.Talks, one of the biggest tech conferences in Europe. The conference that's taking place in Hamburg is visited by more than 1,500 developers. Furthermore, About You offers a well-structured onboarding process with a buddy system and provides access to e-learning tools such as LaraCast and Egghead.io. When starting at About You, you have the choice between different hardware setups as well, for example, MacBook or Windows Notebook, and the kind of IDE you want to work with. About You is growing fast and is constantly hunting for new and motivated team members. About You currently has positions available for full stack, front end, and Dart or Flutter developers, a quality assurance engineer, and a project manager, as well as other exciting leadership positions. Does this sound good to you? Apply now at aboutyou.com slash job. Again, that's aboutyou.com slash job to apply now. They're looking forward to hearing from you. All right, so we're back now, and in this last little section here, we're going to talk about simplicity and managing complexity. So we've all seen it. As projects grow, they tend to be way more complicated, right? And this does a few things or a couple of things that really aren't that good. One, it slows down the development because it takes a lot longer to make changes. We've all been there. And this is also something that we've talked about, I think maybe in the anti-patterns episodes mm-hmm. or whatever, it turns into what's called a big ball of mud. Basically, it's so complex that you can't make changes because you don't know what the ramifications of those things are. And it's so hard to follow that they call it a big ball of mud. Yep. That was, ooh, I don't remember which episode, yeah. but it was the software designs anti-pattern episode 65. 65. Very nice. Yeah. I'll, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Cool. So now we've got a little section titled, you might have a complex indicator if, <laughs> here's your sign. Remember those, that guy? Jeff Foxworthy. That'd be right. Think, if, yep. No. At the, yeah. No, Jeff Foxworthy, it w- was, uh, you might be a redneck if, yeah, that's what the, he was here's your sign was um, Bill Ingvall. Oh my gosh. I think you're right. No, 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 no. Yes. Jeff Foxworthy was both of them. No. Here's your sign. Here's your sign. Was yeah okay. Here's your sign. We all we all go to the internets. Bill Ingvall does not forget a reference. Stupid people. Here's your sign. I'll be doggone. Okay, so you mixed the metaphors. Um, I did, but that's fine. (laughs) They both were on the blue collar comedy tour, so you're allowed that. That I'm just saying, (laughs) one of us might have a better index than the other. I I think your (laughs) index is not corrupted. That is true. Yep. Well, I don't know. You can't say better because I uh, I am an agent of chaos. <laughs> I weave it. I sew it. So yeah, like um, one of the there's there's a couple of these things that are pretty interesting. The the indicators of complexity, the explosion of your state space, tight coupling, which we've talked about in the past. Spaghetti of dependencies is another one that you see a lot of times. 
And but you know when you hit all these, right? Like, you, like it's pretty obvious to you, and you're like, "That's weird." We're storing the person and the order and the order history now in session memory. Crap, or spaghetti dependencies. We go to update something, and it breaks like five of the things, and you can't update. And so it's just easier to just not update. Yep. Okay, but can we can we time out for a moment? I, I don't want to rush through through these. Some because some of these, it's like okay, <clears throat> you, there are tools out there like spaghetti of dependencies, you know, here it's called, but we've talked about it a few times related to like, uh, independ and as well as we covered it in the clean architecture series related to, um, the, the zone of pain versus the zone of uselessness, you know, like, Oh yeah, that was cool. There, there were, there are different tools out there for charting those kind of things. And, you know, like visualizing and, and uncle Bob actually gives you an algorithm on how to, to calculate it right, so I can see tight coupling and sp- and spaghetti of dependencies falling into that, but explosion of state space, like what 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 do you mean when you say that? Like, are you just talking about like you require a lot of memory uh, to be able to keep things in state at the time? Like, I I think that's basically I think it's just that what you just said, and I think it's what Joe said as well. Is as you go on. Because things get more and more complex, you just start storing a ton more in data structures in your application. I think that's what they're referring to there. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of forget what the book actually said about it. That, that's all. They just had a bullet point on it. It wasn't anything massive. Um, the next inconsistent uh, coding standard yeah. naming terminology. Yeah, you can get a plugin to to help with this, uh, but it's it kind of masks the problem a little bit. I think because the coding naming, you know, terminology, oh, well, I guess you can't really fix the terminology, but you can fix the naming standards with like yes. how you case things. And that certainly looks better. But terminology is a big problem. If you don't have that ubiquitous language that we've talked about many times, and that's a, a big problem. Someone's referring to orders and someone else is referring to invoices and they're both kind of similar notions, but they're not quite the same. I had the same exact thought whenever I read that one was this goes back to domain driven design and the ubiquitous language. If you're not using the same terms between, between developers and departments and whomever else, the business people, then that's a big, big problem. It's all connected. Yep. If you find yourself hacking in performance improvements, you might have an indicator of complexity. Hey, we've uh, all if you've seen got that. code to handle one-off edge cases sprinkled throughout your code. These are indicators of complexity. And so we're not saying that these are necessarily wrong, but by saying they're uh, indicators of complexity, it means that your project is kind of by de- definition is harder to maintain. Uh, might be I, worth it. Yeah, I can give but, an example of this. I mean, uh, we've all worked on a project in the past where there were different payment systems and you'd see these kind of things sprinkled all throughout. If PayPal, then do this. If, um, if a credit card do this, if pay by some other service, then do this. That, that you might be thinking if you're listening to this and, and you haven't done a lot of development and abstractions, you're probably thinking, well, that's how I do it, you know, if this and this. But the problem is, is that code starts getting everywhere throughout your application, right? Because at the time somebody placed the order, then you had those things. Now, when you go to fulfill the order and you have to charge those things, you're going to have those same if-else statements everywhere, right? So it just starts creeping throughout your code base. And the proper way to handle that is to abstract it. So you're going to have something like an iPayment. And then you'll have a PayPal that implements iPayment. You'll have a credit card that implements iPayment. So that's basically what they're talking about here is when you start seeing all these edge cases sprinkled out in switch statements and if-elses and whatever, it gets really complicated. And you really start introducing bugs 
because you knew to update these three places over here, but you didn't know that it had also grown feelers and crawlers out to these other three places, right? So that's the biggest problem with it. Yeah, and even that's hard. You know, something to say, just segment off the, the business needs and kind of uh, abstract around those requirements and then fill in what you need. But the, there's a couple problems with that. Like sometimes the business requirements are radically different for different payments processors or how they do refunds or like you have to do things out of kind of different orders. And so it can be high, kind of hard to, to hide that stuff. And alternatively, sometimes you can have a great abstraction and have two different providers and then be like 75, 80% the same. Mm-hmm. And so by breaking them out like that, now you've got this kind of like these duplicated codes that have these things in common that you've got to maintain in two different spots. Well, maybe uh, not. So depending on how you break it out, it can be awkward. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. If you're using, it depends on your language, right? But if you had like a base class that had the 80% that would have been duplicated and then the 20% in each one of the other ones, you know, that's a better thing. But I mean, the thing is, is all languages operate a little bit different. So, you know, depending on your language of choice, but that that's the key, though. If you find yourself putting a bunch of business logic sprinkled throughout main code, then you probably haven't abstracted it enough to make it to where it's reusable in other places. Yeah, do your best. And there's a greater chance of introducing bugs if you've ever been scared to change code because you think you might break something and you're not really sure how to test it or how to tell if you broke something. And that's an indicator of complexity. Uh, and a lack of unit test. There's that. Yeah. Although unit tests can also be a source of complexity. If sometimes you need to change something and you've realized you just broke a bunch of tests. It's like, oh, but we've talked about ways for mitigating that. And also that just being a sign of your tests being brittle and testing the wrong things. Yeah. I mean, I can give an example of where one time this whole thing of a greater risk of introducing bugs is I was given something to where, you know, they wanted to be able to do, like refunds in the system, automating, automating refunds. And the problem was I did that stuff and, and I knew what I was doing, but I didn't realize that there were these uh, consequences of doing it that messed with some transaction tables that I wasn't even aware of that existed. And so I introduced a bug into the system that was super hard to track down all because I had no idea what was happening behind the scenes on those. And it was, it was hard to find. I had some uh, serialization code uh, with a bunch of tests around it because it was custom serialization. And then we changed uh, the naming conventions for all the fields and then changed the all the ints to GUIDs for, uh, for keys. Man, those tests got ruined. <laughs> and uh, when you're looking at like 70 tests failing and you look at them and it looks like it's just this big string diff. It's not real clear to see like which part, you know, it, it makes it tempting to just say, well, I'll just copy the result of the actual paste it into the expected, which totally defeats the point of the, the test there. Right. But it could be really difficult sometimes based on those tests. And it's not necessarily anything that was wrong, but when you're comparing in the, like the test runner, like these 60 line, 60 character strings and you know, 30% of it's changed and all the field names are different. It's just like, I mean, I, it's just rough. I, I've had cases like that too, where it's like, you know, does it feel like I'm testing the wrong thing? And anytime I have find myself in a situation where I need to run it in order to see what the output is. And then that's what I want to like, okay, this is the output that should be like the expect of, of a unit test. I was like, 
hey, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm doing this backwards. Yeah. Well, because I've had like two different things that have come to mind th- that are like that. One was like, uh, oh gosh, actually three. One was in the case of like serializing objects. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, well, uh, you know, it was is like, yeah, I could handwrite it, you know, as to what this, uh, I expect the serialized version to look like, or I could just go ahead and run it and see what it is. And then like that, you know, if I visually say like, I look at it and be like, yep, that's the, that's the thing. So I'm gonna put that in expect, but then it's like, well, anytime anyone would add or change a property on it, then the yeah. serialization would change. And then, and eventually I was like, man, am I really testing the right thing here? Cause you know, I ended up dropping the test in the end, but another example that comes to mind is like, uh, code generators. So, you know, you want to have, you want to test the output of your code generator. And so you write the code, even if you handwrite it to match, but then it's like, okay, now I've decided to update what the output of the code generator should look like. And you're like, well, those tests are just broken. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. another example, the last example that comes to mind is like encryption. Like if you want to test encryption and you're like, oh yeah, well, how do how do I even know what the out the expected output should be by hand? Right, right. It's it's something inherently done by a computer program. So well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess technically you could do the math if you wanted to, but yeah. Yeah, do you want to? Right, yeah, right. So it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just going to run it this one time and like, I'll be okay with it. Yeah, maybe, copy and paste. maybe. Yeah, I will say with the serialization, like you're totally right. In in those cases, it's because I was basically serializing an object and seeing what it was. And if you add a property, it, it does break it. And so the problem is there. I've coupled my serialization scheme, you know, mechanism and logic to my to my objects there. And so I was I should have had a separation there. But I will say also those tests were some of the most valuable tests in the project because there were all sorts of times when someone would update a regex or something small. And like, oh, you just broke uh, situations where there were like triple nested, you know, whatever. And so it was kind of nice to be able to say like, oh, we actually broke something and we had like real world use cases. So in that essence, they were acting, they were doubling as integration tests, which was useful, but more brittle. That's interesting. And they weren't explicitly marked as integration tests. Because you guys are talking about basically an object hash. And that's, uh, it's something similar to that, but I mean... Okay, so, so about, the thing I had was like a, a custom a custom JSON serializer, and the deal was I couldn't just serialize the JSON because I also had to do some transformations. So things like maybe arrays weren't supported, or whenever I saw this type of array, I had to transform into that type of array. So I, I had to I do some you. other kind of stuff, and it wasn't really um, it wasn't uh, it was like it, there were rules around it, mm-hmm. so there weren't like specific names I was looking for or anything. But there were just kind of patterns where I would strip everything that had a name of a type, and if it was uh, square brackets, and it would convert to curly brackets or whatever so it just right. had a custom format that i had to, to match and yeah it was just so much easier to use like real objects in order to test the serialization and i shouldn't have done that i should have totally separate those so but that right, i'm gonna go rewrite harder. those 70 tests yeah that would have been a lot harder though i mean i, I think i know what you're yeah. talking about oh, like yeah, json.net um depending on how data comes in requires objects versus arrays or you have to add additional properties it's sort of a mess yeah, and sometimes like if you've got like some classes and you need to kind of get them to match out to a like JSON format, the the format that the, the thing you need to pass to the JSON to will just have it's like a slightly different structure and then what mm-hmm. JSON will will 
uh, will do so you end up writing custom serializers and it's just so much easier to associate that with the class. Yeah. I think in my case, sort of been for those in hindsight, in my case related to the serialization one, it was like, I should, I should have just used a mock object that was local to the test instead of some class that was mm. being used outside elsewhere. And then I would have avoided the problem. Oh yeah. That's a good point. You know? Yeah. Because then like, if you're changing the mock, then, you know, you're going to be running those tests and be aware. But what my, what happened in my case is that, you know, people weren't aware of the tests and um, would have the habit of not running all of the tests. And so they wouldn't know it until it got merged in. And then it's like, oh, you broke uh, the build. You broke the build. <laughs> and they're like, and they'd be like, well, I didn't even touch that. I'm like, well, I know what the problem is. It's real easy to fix. Here it is. And then, you know, after like the third time, it's like, this is stupid. Yeah. I don't want to keep I, doing I sh- this. Just delete this thing. Cause right. I don't feel like I'm testing what I wanted to, what I really should have been testing or what I wanted to test or like what I need to test. Yeah. I don't know. All right. So tangent aside. Yep. So let's move on to, uh, where are we at? Uh, blah, blah, blah. The, no, so, one, it was X'd out. It's that one. Oh, so, uh, reducing complexity improves maintainability of software. Agreed. Yep. Uh, for this reason alone, we should strive to make our systems simpler to understand. Now, does simpler uh, okay, so less complex or simpler? Yes. In your mind, do you also does size play into that? In your mind? Yeah. Mm, no, because it does for me. Right, uh, like. I mean, and this is consistent with like everything that we learned from like clean architecture or clean code. Size of for what? example, size of methods, yes, all of it. Size of classes, yes. Size of library, size of class, size of function, uh, all of it. It doesn't. Oh man! So here's the reason why I say no is because by splitting up things into more methods, you are adding more code in C sharp for instance, right? Because you'll have more lines just for method definitions and that kind of stuff. So it's not necessarily as longer is, is worse for me. It's just, did you introduce the right level of abstraction? Did you, did you break up your methods properly? Like that to me, easier to follow. Like, you know, we talked about the magazine um, flow or whatever. I mean, let's just put numbers to it. A th- in my mind, a three-line method is far easier to grok than a 300-line method. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right? So so we agree on the extremes. Mm-hmm. Now, where do we meet in the middle? Like, where is that Where is that middle? How many methods? So I guess this is where I'm going. Let's just say the one method. Let's say, let's say that those 300 lines are critical, though. Okay? So is it easier... And simpler to maintain if you take those 300 lines and turn them into 10 methods. So that'd be 30 lines a piece versus the one method with 300 lines. Yeah, the 10 methods with the 30 lines each is going to more than likely be easier to understand if it's broken out properly. I get that's what I'm getting at is I don't necessarily think the length of it determines whether it's complex. It's whether or not you had a bunch of what we call acyclic or, uh, Cyclomatic complexity. Cyclomatic complexity. If you have a bunch of nested if else's within a method, super hard to follow. If you break those out into well named methods that identify what it is, and and those names are what's key. The name, because if you have ten lines of code, mm-hmm. sure, it might it 
you know, maybe those 10 lines aren't that hard to, to understand if you take the time to read it versus one line where the method is super clear what it's returning or what it's doing, yeah. then it's way easier to understand. Yes. So, But that's why I say the length isn't as important to me as a well-thought-out um, implementation of whatever it is that has to happen. Because like, let's, like I said – I don't know, man. To me, I, I mean, I feel confident. Joe's on my side here, so – yeah, if I look at a 10-line method and I see a new variable declared, I know it's not used outside the scope of that those 10 lines. If I've got like a 40-line method, like even if it's like well thought out and organized, it's still there's always some question over like, am I done with this variable? Was it only used for that one line? Does it come back into play later on? It's just – to me, it's just easier to kind of focus on little pieces. I completely agree. Smaller methods, more better. Um, good names on those methods, better. But I'm what I'm saying though is – there are some things that require a decent amount of complexity for whatever it is. And so just because a file is 400 lines long, a class, let's say, is 400 lines long, doesn't mean that it's necessarily hard to follow, right? Yeah, if it's just doing one thing, right? If if the methods were broken up and named properly and and it's all put together in a well way. So I guess that's what I'm saying. Now, Okay, maybe, maybe we should put it this way. Maybe we should say – that complexity tends to follow so larger size. I could probably whether that get be method, that. Yeah. whether that be class, or whether that be library or application. Yeah. The larger the thing is, you know, it 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 tends to be, or maybe I should say it the other way: the more complex the thing is, it's probably going to be larger. The inverse could also be true, though. The more abstractions you have the more difficult it can be to reason about as well. So, well, so there's, there's a joke there's, about that though, right? Yeah. The, the hammer or the, well, no, that's the factories. No, 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 no. The, um, oh gosh, how's it go about like, we need another, another abstraction. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know, but I guess that's what I'm getting at. I remember even, uh, our buddy, Will, who was on the show with us back, um, you know, a few episodes back, I, I remember him changing his status on his, his Skypers messaging profile or something like um, it, it was hilarious. It was something along the lines of abstraction for abstraction sake is insanity or something. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was somewhere along those lines. And it's because if you have a bunch of useless abstractions, it makes it really hard to follow the logic of what's happening. Right. So I don't know that that's why I'm saying like, I'm sort of sitting on the fence here. I think well-written code and well-defined, well-named things goes a long ways towards simplifying that for other developers following. Uh, the key point here that I thought was amazing, and I actually, I actually caps these things, reducing complexity in your code does not mean that you're reducing the functionality in the end user software, right? That's that's super key because a lot of people think, oh well, if we if we have to tear this out, then then the user is going to lose something. No, you can write good code that accomplishes the same end result. All right, and there's also the notion of accidental complexity, uh, which is something that's not inherent in the the problem that the software solves, but arises only for the implementation. So this is a uh, stuff where basically I don't, I don't know what's a good example here, uh, but basically where Databases. The implementation details are a sticking point. If you've ever uh, had somebody ask you to do something, like a pro project manager ask you to do something, and you start talking about like coding constructs or 
why something can't be running in 32-bit or 64-bit or, or something. There could be like these technical reasons that are far removed from the ask that end up just becoming a problem. And so sometimes that's something you should have dealt with. And sometimes it's just a, a fact. It's like a law of nature. Like it's a problem. Well, I think, I, th- I think that would go back to like your payment. We've talked about payment examples before, mm-hmm. right? So the software, like accepting a payment, uh, you know, it's not inherent to that problem, but if you write that software specific to a particular gateway, right. Uh, you know, be it a credit card processor or if it was specific to Amazon payments or Google payments or, or PayPal or whatever. Right. And now you're like asked to, Hey, we need to add in support for a second or third gateway. And you're like, Oh, but everything is specific to the one. Mm-hmm. That's the accidental complexity. Yeah. And another one that I think of uh, is in SQL in databases. Like if you just have a select where you're trying to do like a filter, but you realize that it's not going to work because that table's too large and you end up doing a bunch of select and attempt tables and, and a bunch of sub filtering only to do some CTEs to write that simple query to make it perform faster. That's complexity because of the implementation, because you're having to deal with a performance issue there as opposed to just a simple, Hey, select from here where this equals this. You know what I mean? Hmm. Oh, so. Wow. Okay. So that's a different, that's definitely a different way of thinking about it then. So the accidental complexity is, you know, it was an implementation detail and, and that could be a problem. Like, like it it wasn't a normalized or maybe it was too normalized. Right. Maybe it was set up for fast transactional rights. And so reads are more complicated because you now have to do things. So that's the thing, right? Like what we're talking about here applies to all kinds of different things, but the key is, the complexity wasn't the business problem. The complexity was what you had to do to just even make the thing happen. Okay. So then we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves then, but, or maybe, but how to remove accidental complexity, right? So in the, in the case of like my payment uh, gateway example, you you could hide that by, uh, or not hide it, but you could remove that accidental complexity by having an abstraction so that you your code isn't intimately aware of the details of one specific payment gateway, and instead you know you're hiding that implementation detail behind a facade. Yep. And in talking about the payment things, like people that haven't dealt with those, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you never know. Like if you've ever gone to a gas pump and it says, "Hey, don't use your debit card here because this is going to put a hundred dollar hold." On your debit card, right? Like a lot, a lot of places will say something like that. I've never it, seen that. Oh, really? They they actually say it on the pumps. As a matter of fact, a lot of places, if you book a hotel now, um, they'll actually tell you not to use a debit card there because they'll hold the funds on your debit card and your bank account for the entire hotel thing too, right? So, um, hmm. the the reason I'm saying this is if you've never looked at a payment system, and all three of us are, are pretty hyper aware of this stuff, is there's things called authorizations that happen on a credit card, right? So that's what we're talking about is you go to a gas pump and, and you go in there and you say, hey, they, it doesn't know how much gas you're going to get. So it doesn't know if you're getting 30, 50, 60, 100. So it's going to place an authorization hold for 100 bucks on your thing. So if it's on a debit card, it's hooking into your bank account, right? If you're paying with PayPal, PayPal had no notion of an authorization, right? So what you do, and we've talked about this in the past, is you use a pattern called a facade pattern. So 
you might for your payment system say, hey, I need to have this authorized function. So for a credit card, it would go hook into the gateway and actually call the authorize. For PayPal, it would probably just do a return void or do nothing because it doesn't need to. But hiding that behind that abstraction allows you to do whatever you need with basically any payment system out there. With PayPal, though, it was actually more complicated than that. PayPal, you could do authorizations, crazy. but it wouldn't do – it's not like it was going to hold it. wouldn't it. lock it, right? Yeah. It would just check to see if they It'd be had like, it. Yeah, they, got, they have money in the account right now. Right. But it wasn't like a hold on the account. It was sort of useless because you could authorize it. <laughs> they could spend that money five seconds later, and you'd be left holding the bag. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Now, who knows if it's still that way. That's the way it was right. when we were dealing with it, but um, – but at any rate, yeah, I, I wanted to point that out because having a concrete uh, uh, example of that might help. All right. So it also, the abstractions also allow you to reduce duplication as the abstraction can allow for more reuse among other implementations. Yep. So what Joe had talked about earlier, like you have this 80% of code that's the same between all three of them, put that in a base class and then have subclasses off that that just do the various little specific pieces they need to. Um, so some examples of good abstractions are programming languages. They abstract away from your Ram, your Ram registers, your CPU, your chipsets. When was the last time any of us had to think about doing any of that kind of stuff with C sharp or Java or any, you don't, right? Software development is just a constant evolution of more abstractions on top of abstractions on top of abstractions. It's turtles all the way down. It really is. And it's all about making those little, little things easier over and over and over again until next thing you know, you're uh, slinging together big data <laughs> intensive systems. Well, that's what's funny. So the next one they said that was an example of a good abstraction is the SQL language itself. It's an abstraction over complex memory and data structures. And as you get into, so I know Joe and I have been dipping our toes into this world quite a bit. As you get into big data systems, the one thing that seems to be constant is the SQL language. Like everybody wants to build tools yeah. that use SQL. <clears throat> like everybody. You look at um so there's things like Presto DB out there, there's Drill, there's Hive, there, there's all kinds of things and they all have a SQL plugin type thing too. Or them. a SQL like syntax that you can use. Yes. It it's because it makes sense to us that. It's it's sort of it sort of reads Like you don't care English. Yeah, you don't care how how the data is stored on disk. You're just saying like, look, I want all of the data where the first name is Bart and the last name is Simpson. Simpson it's easy to reason. Yeah. Return that. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's easy to reason. So, um, yeah, SQL is an abstraction that I think when we were reading this book I, in one of the earlier chapters, what did they say? It was started in the 70s or something, and it's just turned into what everybody is sort of latched onto for reading and, and understanding data. So killer good abstraction, basically. Um, and then they actually say, and this is, this is kind of the funny part and it makes a lot of sense. Finding good abstractions is really hard, really hard to do. And they basically said that that's become apparent with these distributed systems because they haven't found the patterns that have emerged yet to make these abstractions work across systems. Right. Here, here's something though that this is why I say like the you know when I said that the programming or software development is just abstractions built on top of abstractions on top of abstractions because like we need to have some lessons learned 
right? Oh, yeah. Like even Im- imagine the knowledge that you had today, right? And Doc comes up to you and he's like, Marty, I need you to go back to 1955, <laughs> right? And and so you hop on the DeLorean and you go, right? Now packed with all of the knowledge that you know today, right? Imagine the influence that you could have if you got stuck there and you're like, well, I'm going to make the best of it, right? And and you still want to do software development, right? And so you wanted to try to like, hey, yeah, that's great, but you know, this is the way it could be, right? But you you still wouldn't be able to skip. You wouldn't be able to skip from 1955 technology to 2019 technology because everybody would still need to have, you know, have to go through those lessons learned of, of you know, building the, the the first abstraction of going from like card readers to like, okay, let's manipulate the registers uh, with, with binary or whatever, or, or uh, assembly language, right? Versus, okay, well, that was cool. Let's go to C now mm-hmm. instead. Or, okay, that's cool. But, you know, I kind of like to think in terms of, you know, like, what if I could have like an, an object that could maintain its own state and manage, you know, and you just keep building on top of that until eventually you're talking about something like React or, or even better than that, you're talking about cloud computing, right? Right. Like you'd still have to go through all of those steps. Yeah. It's layers, right? It's layers of things that have happened over the years and it's, it's not easy. You can't build a seven layer cake with just the top layer. I mean, we, we all do it every day in our writing of code, right? Like, uh, I know, I know, Joe, you said you do it. I do it too, right? Like, I'll write something out, get it to work. And then I'm like, all right, refactor, refactor, refactor. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. That's a great example. That's extracting those patterns. That's finding those abstractions that you need so that the thing makes sense. And it's not, it's no longer just one big blob of thought that somehow worked. Yeah. Right? TDD. Yeah. Is what you're describing. Yeah. Which? There's one change I would make though. What's that? Okay. Back in 1970, <laughs> when the they're determining a sequel, which by the way I just found out, and maybe I learned this before, but uh, I don't know. Wait, as, before you say it, Joe, I don't know if you've heard this, Alan, but he has a few little gripes with sequel. He's not a fan. Here it comes. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's we're ready. Lay it like, on us. But th- there's only one thing that I would mention. What? Because everything else, all my other groups of sequel are all things that should have been taken care of after, after the fact. And, uh, you know, anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> the one thing I would just kind of whisper into the IBM people's ears, I would say, you know, if you put the from clause first, then when you do the select tools in the future would be able to help you auto-complete the columns that are there. I agree with that. It is annoying that you have to put the from after it just to get yeah. what you need in So the if top. you want auto-complete, you got to go write the from and then go back up a line. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I guess I'm not going to be the only one that does that writes their queries like this, where you like select star from table and then go back and change the star. Yeah. No, no, I do that totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah I, I do too, but I hate that. That's how every sane person does it nowadays. Yeah, because yeah. you need that. Auto- and you got to write the where clause before any sort of update or delete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you need it in there, and then you put a big entrant around it first, anyway. So, oh no. Yeah, so <laughs> I was thinking the same. Oh god, you guys. Well, I don't modify data in production. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was my answer too, sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. No cowboy coding here. Right. Um so uh the next thing is evolvability, and this is the last little bit, is making changes easier. 
So it's very, very likely that your system will need to undergo some changes as time moves on, right? Uh, business needs change, uh, user needs change, whatever it is, things are going to change and your system has to modify with it. Well, I mean, look at how Facebook has evolved from Golly. 2007 to 2019. MySQL, MySQL and PHP back in the day. Yeah. Which is still PHP and MySQL for a lot of things, but it's scaled a little bit different now, right? Is it still PHP? I didn't think it was anymore. I believe it is PHP, isn't it? Isn't it index.php? Yeah, the compiled PHP. Okay. They, they, I believe they still stuck with it, yeah. Huh. Um, I want to say D language, too, is supposed to be. Or, or hack is the name of the language that compiles to PHP. Okay. All right, hold on. I, I'm going to find that out. You go on. All right. So this is where some things like Agile has come into play to allow us to be able to adopt these changes quicker, right? Um, but with that, there came some tools and some methods that have grown out of it. And let's ignore the fact that Agile was supposed to be a an idea to follow instead of a bunch of certifications because that drives me crazy now. But really what came out were things like test-driven development. That grew from the need to be able to Agile, to be Agile, uh, in software development, refactoring is another one. Um, and the book even says that they are focusing on how to be agile within a large data system. And one of the examples they gave, which I don't think we went into in depth because really you need the book to, to get the full appreciation of it was like what they went through when they were trying to change the home timeline for a Twitter account, like, they went through several iterations because it's a way harder problem than what you would think. Um, you know, for users that have 20 million followers versus users that have five, right? Holy mackerel. Some people have too much time on their hands. What are you talking about? So, <clears throat> so the short answer is to your Facebook question, does Facebook still use PHP is yes. But this, I just put a link to Quora with the guy who has the accepted, you know, the top answer and it's just like man you wrote a lot <laughs> for what started as a one word answer well yeah so when i interviewed facebook uh, a couple of years ago uh i i was like so you guys still doing a php just asking and the Poor answer friend. i got back from the the interviewer was like well, I mean, react graphql it's just was like a long list of all of the cool things they're doing I'm like well, wait you didn't answer my question. <laughs> I like how you asked that. Like, uh, you, but you should, if all, it would have been so much better if you said for a friend. I'm just asking. Right. For a yeah. Friend. Yeah. And I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to sound like a hater. I'm trying to be less of a hater of things that I don't understand because frequently it turns out I'm wrong. <laughs> turns out it's amazing. So like, uh, I've had to retract everything I've ever said about, uh, bad about Java and JVM. I even had to get a tattoo removed recently. We won't, we won't go into that, but yeah, <laughs> actually, mine no, is opened. It wasn't Java that you retracted; it was Kotlin. It's it's what Java compiles to that you're happy with now, right? Yeah, but now I'm I'm appreciating the Java ecosystem a lot more, and so all the things that used to frustrate me, like I'm finding strength in them. But but they still do create a ton of work for you to do. I, I'm more curious oh, about yeah. this tattoo. Uh, the one that he we said he had to get, but he uh, had I know removed. he owes us a Visual Studio. Tattoo. I think he's saying that he got it and now it's gone. No, <laughs> no, I, I got it and I removed it. Yeah, yeah. No. No, I, think, I think that's what he's trying I to think, sneak in there. I think that the the world is still asking for Joe to get that 
Oh, well, I texted somebody the pictures. Now, now, now I'm worried. <laughs> uh, they've leaked. Uh, all right. Great. So, so this is um, how easy you can modify a data system is closely linked to how simple it is. We all know that to be true. We've all been there. And they decided in this book, rather than calling it agile or agility, they're going to refer to it as evolvability, which, eh, I mean, I guess they wanted to be a little bit different. So, yeah. Yeah, I like it. And we've talked a lot about evolvability, like the whole clean architecture, clean code, a lot of the stuff we've done is kind of focused on that. So we're not going to spend too much time here. Yep. Or or anymore. <laughs> Let's just cap it. <laughs> <laughs> we like. All right, fine then. Be that way. All right, so uh, then, as he alluded to, we will have some links to uh, the resource in the resources we like section for this episode. And with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, this really is my favorite part of the show, except for today, <laughs> because for some reason, I don't guess I've done anything useful in a couple of weeks because I was really struggling here. Uh, and I don't know if I've used this one before or not, but I went ahead and put Fluent D in as my tip of the week, because if you've never heard of it, it's really kind of cool. So basically, its sole purpose in existence was to move really log data from one place to another. And it's sort of evolved into this just simple tool for moving any kind of data from one place to another. So there is a whole ton of of uh, plugins that you can get that say, hey, connect to a SQL data source or connect to a log source or connect to whatever. Like pick your flavor and then now send that somewhere else. But the cool part is, and this is what's really neat about it and the reason why I wanted to share it as the tip of the week is, you can let's say that you're going to send uh, Apache logs and you want to send them to multiple places. The cool part is you can have an input, a source that is pointing at Apache logs, and you can have multiple matching destinations to where you could ship that stuff to a file system. You could ship it out to the console. You could ship it to a database. You could ship it to Splunk. You could ship it up to AWS S3. Like you can truly have it route these things wherever you want multiple places, one place, whatever. And it is a really nice way of being able to move information from one spot to another. And the last reason I want to point it out is this is what Kubernetes uses behind the scenes in order to basically combine and, or, or gather all the logs from all running pods or containers and put them into a centralized available location in a Kubernetes cluster and that's why you can use things like Prometheus and Grafana to then visualize all the things that are happening in your cluster. And it's truly a thing of beauty when you see it. So um, if you haven't heard of FluentD, I would check it out. It's really nice. It's cool and it's simple. It's written in Ruby. So you can go hack the heck out of it and make it do whatever you want. So pretty neat stuff. All right. So let's talk about te- unit testing. So do you guys, when you unit test, do you, what's your preference for like how many asserts that you would have in your, in your code? One. One. Joe? I don't mind multiple. 
Mm. I'm fine with multiple. All right. Well, just know two thirds of this podcast doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> no. Okay. So it's not my fault that I'm lazy. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you? Well, sometimes you find yourself in a situation though where you're like, "But I think I really need two asserts here." Right. But like, what do you do? Right. I don't know how long this has existed, but apparently it's been around for at least since 2017, because that's when the documentation was last edited. But if you use in unit, for example, you can have multiple asserts. So you could do assert dot multiple and then pass in a delegate function to where you can have multiple assert statements. And what it'll do is it'll execute all of them and verify that, you know, it'll, if, if, if you had multiple, let's say you had three asserts nor in without multiple dot, uh, without assert dot multiple, then what would happen is if the first assault, um, assault, if the first assert failed, then the execution would automatically stop there. And the first error is the one that would be thrown back to you. Right. And so then you're like, okay, let me refactor. And then now the second one fails. And you're like, oh, if only I known I would have done both of them at the same time. And then you fix the second one and then you run it again. And then, oh, the third one breaks too. And you're like, oh my, right? Well, what assert.multiple will do is it'll execute all of them and it'll, it'll report back the collection. So like if all three failed in that example, then you'll know all three failed. With their errors. Right. With their various errors. So if you do find yourself in a situation where you not, might need to assert two things, right? Or more. God help you. Then, then you know you you have this way to do it. And like I said, I, I didn't know that that was a thing, and I stumbled across it, and I was like, "Oh man, this is amazing." That really is nice. Yeah, it 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 it, it has its place. Um, and then I thought I'd share this because, like, m- maybe, uh, just I never realized it. You know, I never knew realized this was a thing. And Joe, maybe I, I already talked with Alan about it, so I can't I can't question him on it, but. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but it turns out that uh, where constraints on your C-sharp methods are way cooler than what I realized. So the where's will set you free, man. Those constraints add features. So so just so you everyone is on the same page, if you have a, a method that takes in a generic, right, then on the method signature, you could have... Uh, you know, like where T colon class, for example, meaning that it has to be a, a a type of class, right? Not a struct, not a primitive. Or you could say like where T colon new, meaning that whatever method is being passed in has to have a public constructor, right? Um, so that's my favorite one. So what I didn't realize is that let's say you have a list, right? And you um you write a a method that takes in a list of t and you add a constraint to it right like uh where t colon class meaning you don't want primitives you this method isn't going to work on a list of primitives it's only going to work on a list of classes what i never realized is that intellisense is smart enough to know that if you have a list of integers it won't even show you that method. Like, let, let's say it was an extension method, for example. IntelliSense will not even show you that extension method. I didn't uh, realize oh, that okay. it, that was a thing, that it was that smart to do that. There was, 
And I was like, oh, this is so cool. So it's using those constraints yeah, so, in so, your IntelliSense. Yeah. So if you have yeah, a list nice. of, if you write an extension method for a list uh, that where, where T colon class, and then you have you in later in your code, you have a list of integers that extension method doesn't show up in the IntelliSense when you do the dot. That is beautiful. So awesome. Visual Studio is awesome. It's amazing. Yep. That's why I would have gotten a tattoo. <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't have felt bad about it. All right. Time for my tip. And uh, this was in, in reference, to, reference to Luke Skywalker is not null. Uh, although the last movie, yeah, anyway, Star Trek uh, forever. But uh, <laughs> so uh, Luke Skywalker is not null. Uh, asks is basically for a baseline for determining what a good SLO and SLAs were for. An application, and of course the the, the real answer is d- it depends. But it kind of got me thinking, like maybe there is some sort of baseline we can find for web applications specifically. Because I know we've all heard stats around like if a page takes more than X seconds, then people start dropping off, and we've seen some numbers around that before. So I I did a little bit of googling from that angle, and I found an article that somebody put together that does aggregate a bunch of user interface operations. Uh, from like a user kind of focused perspective and it does give some, some basic numbers. So basically, uh, you know, we all know UI response times should be as fast as possible. But now this, uh, web page actually gives a couple ref, uh, a couple numbers and references for that. So application launch should take less than 10 seconds. A response to any user action, like if you click a button or something, less than one second. And then, uh, that's, you know, that's pretty high there. But just knowing those two alone, there's there's a whole lot more. Just starts giving you a, a kind of a baseline of the kinds of uh, numbers that you can start coming up with, and it goes on to say, specifically with the responsive user action, 0.2 seconds feels like instantaneous. So if you want your user to feel like they got a, an instantaneous response and you don't want them to tap over and over again, then 0.2 seconds is your goal for those kind of actions. Um, generating a report less than 30 seconds. So this kind of this this article here this um page I found uh goes on with I don't know probably 30 different numbers that just kind of establish like good baselines for normal usability. So if you exceed these bounds then it's going to be uh your users might be expecting different things based on other applications that they're using. So if you're looking for a baseline for where to start and adapt for a web application then this is not a bad place to start. So in regards to the question that Skywalker is null asked, he was basically saying, hey, are there any tools out there to help you determine what your SLAs and SLOs should be? And so what you're saying is these numbers on this page are probably a good place to start for, you know, how you're trying to please your audience more or less. Yeah, and it's definitely customer focused. Uh, so, you know, uh, like in a perfect world, like you would figure out things that are like keep KPIs that are specific to you. So like you know, Twitter example, like how many tweets per second, how many home pages per second, how many active users per second. Um, th- those are more kind of folks around the, the load parameters than the, the actual SLOs and SLAs, but you could kind of derive some, some SLOs and SLAs after that. Like how long does it take to post a tweet? How long does it take to, uh, or, you know, how long should it take to post a tweet? But ultimately you do kind of have to start out with some sort of guess, but I think there's uh some some links and some references for how they came to these numbers. So if you want to know like how long should it take for a, an alert to last on screen, 
Uh, well, there's a reference here that says it should be vis- visible in less than 10 seconds and not exceed showing for 60 seconds. So now you can start kind of using this as a template and going going from there to kind of come up with some SLOs and SLAs. And by all means, like, you know, adjust. So you could start with these numbers. And if they don't make sense for you, if there's some ones you don't like or don't make sense for your specific use cases, or you know, then by all means change it. Or this might trigger you to think like about some things that are more specific to your business that might make more sense to uh, to add. Like login time maybe is something that matters. Like you want the, the login form to take less than one second. I don't know. But the key is we don't still know of any tools that help you determine these SLAs and SLOs, but figures like this are a good starting point to to figure that stuff out. Oh, no, sure. The tool would be Excel, and you punch these in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I'm hyper familiar with that of late. Yeah, well, I mean, I know tools for measuring, like things like Grafana is like a kind of the prime example. It's like you got like a million dashboards. You can like plug in something and, you know, get, understanding them is another thing. But from there, uh, you know, figuring like whether you're, it's the 99th percentile for the mean, like that's a whole nother story. And, and I don't know of any tools for that. So this is specifically for just getting those kind of initial uh, targets to start with. Right. Cool. And that's about it. So that was it for my tip. So uh, just to kind of wrap things up, this episode was all about maintainability from the perspective of a distributed system. And we talked about the ways you can increase your maintainability by increasing operati- operability, operability, <laughs> <laughs> and reducing complexity. Too much eggnog. And uh, also, this kind of concludes the uh, the three ways we talked about how we could, the setup we're doing in order to kind of talk about distributed systems in the future episodes. So everything we're going to be looking at and talking about from now on, we're going to focus on these kind of three tent poles of scalability, reliability, and maintainability. And so if – Oh, go ahead. Nope. I, I was just going to add, like, you, you get to pick two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I think there's a, the the trade offs are a lot more nuanced, and we're going to be talking in future episodes about some some really cool systems and some really cool do- ways of doing things that uh, kind of have fun with these parameters and the trade offs they make and why. It's all about those trade offs, right? Yep. All right. Well, with that, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or more using your favorite podcast app in case uh, if a friend happened to share an episode with you or point you in the direction or you're listening on their device. And uh, as Joe mentioned earlier, if you haven't already, if you would leave us a review, we would be forever grateful. Uh, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and also, I'm constantly surprised by the number of people that have no idea what a podcast is or how to get it. So, you know, help a friend out. Tell them what they're missing. And so, while you're up at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And, 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 and. and, and, We have a latency and response time issue. uh, uh, Hold on. I'm sorry. Just let me try it one more time. And and it worked earlier. Hold on, I'm, I'm trying to to automate the outro here. Uh, and 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 send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at 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 CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the 
I feel like Max Headroom is on the mic right now. Do you remember Max Headroom? I do, I do. And and I believe that our system is not operating in a predictable fashion. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there though. We got the you know the first step is just to automate and we can adjust from there. It That's doesn't it. matter. We got scalability. Yes, we're gonna scale this. 